Isaiah chapter 11. And the word of God says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all thy holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shemar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Almighty God, we gather before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we thank you that because of the sacrifice that was provided on our behalf, your wrath being unleashed upon your Son. For all who would believe that we've been delivered from the power of sin and death and from your holy wrath as we stand before the cross and join together this morning in remembrance of that which you've accomplished on our behalf your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, and remembrance of the new covenant of the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May this morning and may this gathering be glorifying to you. May you, by the imparted grace of your Holy Spirit, enable and anoint me to communicate the glories of Scripture to your people. I pray for those that are unbelievers to be brought to the end of themselves, to see the utter weight and eternal damnation of their own sin that weighs upon their shoulders and a clear understanding and knowing that only Christ Jesus can lift the burden. Only he can pay the price or they will pay it themselves. May there be new life birth today and for the church, Lord, I pray that you'll give us ears to hear so that we can clearly see the truth of Scripture revealed in the glories of heaven, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Please be seated. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We will focus our attention this morning on the entire chapter. If you're a visitor here with us this morning, <clears throat> on behalf of Pacific Hope Church, I want to say welcome. We're pleased to have you. And we're also pleased to have, as I see right now, oh, you just let me be, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Jeff and Jessica Williams. They've been married for 16 hours and 10 minutes. <laughs> Congratulations. That was a joy, by the way, yesterday. So, <clears throat> blessings to you both. Here they are at church service to gather together at the Lord's table 
But the rest of the sinners saved by grace. The church of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's look together at chapter 5. <clears throat> I'll read it in just a moment. Now, as you recall, chapter 4 of the Revelation sets the scene for chapter 5. Picturing God's transcendent, transcendent glory, which is so incredible, so magnificent, and so indescribable that even the highest order of angelic beings cover their faces before the Almighty. They exalt him not only for his sovereignty, but also for his creative power, and that was the focus of praise to chapter 4. Almighty God, our creator. These heavenly angelic beings know that they exist only because God has decreed it as so. Now, we, beloved, whether we realize it or not, exist only because God has decreed it as such. Now, heavenly angelic beings know this, and they cover their face before the Almighty, and we, as finite human beings, often forget that our existence is only due to the decreed will of the Almighty. So we've been given a glimpse here into the heavenly throne room of the Almighty. We've seen what heaven is like. Not what heaven looks like, but what heaven is like. What heavenly worship is like. We've witnessed the fearful sight of the holiness of Almighty God along with the serenity of his majestic glory. Angelic hosts who do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We gathered here, we gather here every Sunday as a redeemed people. And as we worship, beloved, we worship by faith. This angelic host of angels, created beings, the redeemed who are there with the Lord, they worship by sight. We gather here today, Sunday after Sunday, whatever day of the week we gather to worship, we worship by faith. As you worship the Lord out in everyday life, you worship by faith. But one day, we will be lifted from this place of faith-filled worship to where we will no longer need faith. For we will see him as he is, and when we see him as he is, we will then be made like him. The glorified presence of Almighty God. And all of our hope in Jesus Christ will then be fulfilled. Revelation 4 and 5 are two parts to one brilliant vision of God's glory. So this morning, beloved, our focus shifts now from Almighty God the Creator and the glory that is due to His name and His name alone to Almighty God as Redeemer. Redemption and recreation is in focus now in chapter 5. Thus, the title of the message this morning is From Glory to Glory. And we'll pick up where we left off last time, right here in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the living word of God, which reads, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing in honor, in glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This ends the reading of the word of God. A.W. Tozer in his classic work, Knowledge of the Holy, said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The great Puritan theologian John Owen in his writings on spiritual mindedness, volume seven of his multi-volume work in theology He makes a statement in the form of a question. He says, quote, what do you think about when you are not thinking about anything in particular? Again, what do you think about when you are not thinking about anything in particular? In other words, what is the default setting of your mind? What do you revert to when you're not being forced to go in any certain direction? You're not working, you're not having to focus on your job, you're not having to study for a test, whatever it may be. You see, that, Owen says, is the indicator of your spiritual mindedness. That is the indicator, Owen says, of your holiness. My hope this morning is that the description here of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5 will ever and forever be formed in your mind. That when you think about God, you'll think about Christ on the throne. I want you to see this morning the reality and the purpose under which we live. Many people talk about trying to do do church in order to be relevant. Let me tell you something, beloved. What you see in chapter 5, that is relevant reality. You want to know what it is to be a church that is relevant? It's to live and worship the Lord who sits upon the throne, Jesus Christ. This is what the church of Jesus Christ must understand. And therefore live by. So to help us see as such, I've broken up the text into five parts. And I want you to see first and foremost, number one, this unsearchable scroll. This is outlined for you in your bulletin. The unsearchable scroll, verse one. Then I saw, this is John receiving the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, anytime, beloved, you read in the Bible the right hand, the right foot, the right side, they represent the strongest faculties of man. If you're left-handed, we apologize, but that is (laughs) the reality of the situation. So, traditionally speaking, the right hand was the sign of power and authority. And in the hand of the authoritative one, the almighty God, 
is a scroll written on the front, written on the back, and all around. This scroll is sealed shut. In the ancient world, once a scroll and the writing thereof was complete, they would roll up the scroll on its spindle and tie it off with either a string or a leather strap, something of that nature. But if you were dealing with an official document, it would be sealed shut by pouring out wax along the edge where you would impress your personal seal and press it into the wax. That's where a king would take his signet ring and impress his signet ring into the wax so that the one who was receiving the document would, could tell whether or not it was tampered with. This is sealed seven times. John sees a seven-sealed document. Seven is the number of completeness, of fullness, of wholeness. And as you know by now, numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. They take on great meaning. We have the seven churches of Jesus Christ in Asia Minor, which represents the church as a whole throughout all of redemptive history. Seven eyes, seven horns, seven heads, seven spirits. But the point here is that nobody could look into this seal of perfection and this seal of completeness unless they were worthy to break the seals and then enact the content within the scroll to carry it out. So what then is the significance of a seven-sealed scroll? Well, it's the absolute inaccessibility of the contents of God's hidden and unbreakable will. What is it and how will it come to pass? So the concern here is not only for the content of the scroll to be revealed, but that the contents within will actually be carried out. So it's not merely a disclosure of information, but it's an initiation of that which is to be disclosed. It's like the official reading of a will. Okay, if Uncle Bob is leaving you a half a million dollars, so it's written down. Great. But until the official reading of the will is granted, the content of the will cannot be carried out. You never get your half a million. Now, it's quite an extraordinary thing here to have a scroll written on both the front and the back. Both sides. It was customary in antiquity for a scroll to be written only on one side. Now, we read of another extraordinary scroll in the book of Ezekiel. Very similar wording. And this has to do with the commissioning of the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 2, verse 9 of Ezekiel, it says, When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. Judgment. The judgment of God upon his people. So Ezekiel is ordered by God to take this scroll, this double-sided scroll, and to eat it. You remember the story? And when he eats it, 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 it tastes sweet to his mouth. Now, although he pitied the people that he was to go preach to, at the same time, he acknowledges that this could happen no other way. So he therefore subsides to the just judgment of God and he will go faithfully preach the word of God. Like Jeremiah. He would preach. Isaiah would preach and no one would hear and God said no one's going to hear. No one is going to listen, Isaiah, but I want you to preach. And the more you preach, the harder and more resistant the people will become but it tastes sweet to the prophet because he knows it's the revelatory truth of the Almighty. So this scroll is comprehensive, containing all that there is. This is God's plenary of what is coming in both blessing and judgment, that which is coming to God's redeemed and that which is coming to those who resist him and hate him or remain indifferent towards him. For to remain indifferent is to be set against him. 
No fence sitters in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you're either for me or you are against me. Now, here's this scroll. This is history to us. To John, this is the future. So this is history in part as we look now. And this is God's story. This is his story that is continuing to be carried out to this very moment. Notice now the seven-sealed scroll which God holds, the Almighty, in his right hand. And notice now the next point, this unmitigated search. This is a total absolute search for someone to take this scroll and open it up, read, and then initiate that which is written in it. Notice. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So appearing on the scene here is this mighty angel, hearkening for someone worthy to to perform this supreme service of bringing history to its foreordained consummation. This is God's foreordained plan, established when? Beloved, in eternity past. Remember the vision of chapter 4? We had to set the stage. That was his indescribable glory, his, his inherent majesty. And all that to say, who could possibly draw near to this mighty, fearful, awesome God? Who was going to just saunter into his presence? And as D.A. Carson says, we think that you can just saunter into God's presence and say, hi, Dad, not this mighty one. Who's able to walk over the sea of glass, which is described to be like crystal that separates his throne from his creation? Who's able to pass through the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder described in chapter four to not only approach the throne of the Almighty, but to take this scroll? Who could even bypass the heavenly cabinet of these forces of angelic beings which surround his throne? After all, we read in the Old Testament, one angel can destroy 150,000 soldiers just like that. But yet at the same time, this high angelic force of beings don't even look into the face of God but they cover their face and they cover their feet. And with the other two wings, they fly in his presence. That's humility. That's the holiness of God. That's what the holiness of God ought to produce in us. Utter humility. Complete submission. So the proclamation then of this strong and mighty angel goes out now to the entire universe. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the call. Who can possibly inaugurate the purposes of God in salvation and judgment? So the question is not, again, who's able to reveal it, but who's worthy to execute the plan? Ability refers to strength, skill. Whereas worthiness relates to qualification to fulfill the task. Who's qualified? Who is there that's worthy to take this scroll from the right hand of the sovereign authority, God the Father? You see, if the seals remain shut, beloved, the concern for John is not only that we're not able to see the content or the plan of the human race, but also that none of it will be brought to pass. That's what we'll go on to see here, his concern and his mourning and his wailing. So therefore, what we see in this call is a universal deficiency, incompetence and inadequacy through and through. After all of creation is surveyed, nobody was found worthy and John responds. Notice the fearful response here in verse three. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
This scene, beloved, is the very reason the setting of chapter 4 is critical to our understanding. As John was taken up into glory and to splendor and to the majestic presence of the Almighty, he experiences those terrifying sights and sounds of what heaven is like, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, because of the Holy One. I was just in Mobile, Alabama, and I remember I was talking a couple weeks ago regarding this verse of thunders and lightnings and peals of thunder, and I said, we don't even know what thunder and lightning is here. Go to the Midwest and you'll experience real thunder and lightning. And we had a storm there at 2.30 in the morning. And you know in the hotel room when you have two sets of blinds, you have those dark, dense blinds that shuts out all light and you can sleep all day. And then a shear in front of it. I had both of them shut. And lightning and thunder struck at the same time. There was the lightning and the thunder. Crack! Right there. It must have been in the parking lot. And it lit up the entire room through those dense blinds. That's thunder and lightning. And if you think that is frightening, stand in the presence of the one who sits on the throne. Surrounded by angelic force who dare not gaze upon his presence, but they bow down, they worship, and they cast their throne, their crowns before the throne. All that to say, again, no one's going to simply stroll into the presence of the Almighty and say, I'll do it. So the challenge, who is worthy to open the scroll, is to ask who is able to bring about God's purposes, his will. There's no angelic being in heaven that can do it. Moses, who's up there, he can't do it. Notice, there's no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. That's the totality of God's creation. No one's found worthy. Not Gabriel, not Michael, not Elijah. Nobody. Universal inadequacy. Can't even get close enough to take a glimpse at this seven-sealed scroll. Now, some of you may ask, well, why doesn't God the Father just simply do it himself? Because, beloved, he, and don't miss this, he has set a limit. He has set this limit to his own omnipotence. Could God do it? Of course he can. Will he do it? No. Why? Why? Because all all of mankind fell and are sinners in Adam. Man created in the image of God, delegated with authority over the whole earth. That's what God gave to Adam. He fell, he sinned, therefore everyone after Adam, as well as all of creation, suffers the consequence of sin. So the destiny of man as well as the destiny of creation, must be determined by a man to restore that which was lost in the Garden of Eden. Creation was delegated to Adam, and he gave it over to Satan. So when Satan tempted Jesus, and he said, bow down to me now, and I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth, because, he said in Luke 4, they were delivered up to me. So it takes a man to lay hold of this scroll. It takes a man to carry out the content within this sealed scroll, but that man must be a perfect man. Flawless. So the call's gone out. No one is found adequate to carry out the task. John's tears here are the product of thinking that God's purposes for judgment and blessing will not and cannot come to pass. Which means all of this tribulation that God's people on earth are suffering, myself included, John says, are experiencing this for nothing. It's all in vain. Remember chapter 1? John writes this letter. He said, I'm John, your brother and partner in the what? In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. We're enduring suffering now with a greater hope of deliverance. 
their tribulation, their proclamation of the gospel, their commitment to Jesus Christ because of his commitment to them, their witness, it's all in vain. Everything the church is going through, temptations, the temptations you face, the turmoil you face, the treachery that we may face in being gospel proclaimers, it's all in vain. How will the vindication of his suffering saints ever be fulfilled? How will the enemies of God and the gospel be rightly judged? If God promises to generate his purposes for justice and blessing, but, they, but there's no one to open it, there's, how are they going to be fulfilled? What's going to happen? This is all for nothing. What are we doing here? What do we tell our children? What, that God wins? When every time they look and see, it seems as though it's the God-haters who win as Christians get trampled, left in the dust. How can we tell the woman who lives for Christ, whose husband has departed, keep running, persevere, keep your eyes on Christ? How can we say justice will prevail? How can we say, as God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. How can, how can he say, be faithful unto death and I will reward you in the end? There was a tribulation here that was to one day end. Christ's established kingdom as John was part of the tribulation and the kingdom is one day to be fully consummated in a new heaven and a new earth. None of it will come to pass unless the writing of the scroll is implemented. So John weeps because no one was found worthy to open the scroll of God's judgment and blessing. I'd weep. You know, we live in a world today, beloved, where the masses say, you know, truth is probably out there, but we just can't know it. Now, you know what the problem is for them? They don't have enough sense to weep. Yeah, there's probably many roads to God and your Jesus is probably one of them. I wouldn't say that authoritatively. They ought to be weeping. But they don't have the sense to weep. That's why they need the gospel. Heralded. Unapologetically. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. The one worthy to take the scroll. Notice. The uncontested sovereign. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, in apocalyptic literature, now you've been learning some rules about apocalyptic literature over the weeks. I can't cover them all right now, but I'll cover them again in a week or two. But one of the principles in apocalyptic literature is that angelic beings are the ones that interpret the vision to the seer. Okay? That is one of the reasons we believe that the elders here in chapter 5 are angels and not redeemed believers. He says here, there's one who has conquered. Now the word conquer is a very strong word. It implies conquering through great struggle, victory through conflict. And he, he conquered through conflict. And that conquering hero is none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah, referring to the promised Messiah. Now this, beloved, this takes us all the way back to Genesis 49, where the patriarchal blessing that Jacob gave to his sons, that there's the promise of the kingdom, and that it would come through the, through the tribe of Judah. Judah was the son of Jacob. And he was referred to there in Genesis as the lion's cub. And this, the promise was that the scepter shall not, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Where would Jesus come through? The line of Judah, which would lead to David. And notice next, the root of David. 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Here now, the root of David, the, the, the one who is out of the dynasty of David. Not only the one who would come out of the dynasty of David, but the one who's also the root of David, the creator of David, the creator of Judah, the creator of Jacob, the creator of all men. Jesus is the root, and as you will see in a moment, he's also the shoot. He's creator and fulfillment, as prophesied in Isaiah 11. Remember our opening reading this morning? Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, this is all going to be foreign to you. And as I said at the outset of our study, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you must understand the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you remember back in the Old Testament, God judged Judah. He judged his people and he caused the dynasty of David to look like a stump. You go out and cut a tree down and all that's left is a stump. And you go, the tree is no more. It's desolate. It's done with. But the Lord promises that he will raise up an incomparably greater kingdom through a greater David. And David was a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was to come. So Jesus is the root of David, the creator of David, and he's the shoot of the Davidic dynasty because it was prophesied that through the line of David, King David would come the promised one, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus here fulfills both the shoot and the root aspect of this prophecy, you see. The root of David. And he supports it all as creator. Where at the same time, the shoot of David, Jesus comes out of this divinic dynasty and all we have to do is read Matthew chapter one, the lineage of Jesus Christ, and you'll see he comes out of this dynasty. Ten years ago or so, I had a neighbor with this flourishing, fruitful apricot tree in his front yard. And one day, he took the fruit off of that thing and made some apricot jam. Normally, I don't like apricot jam, but that was the best jam I'd ever tasted in my life. And then not long after that, the tree had to be cut down because it had some disease. All that was left was a stump. And the stump, as it was cut down so low, it was cut down below grade to where the grass actually grew over it. But all of a sudden, one day, popped up a shoot, a green shoot. And that shoot became a little trunk and little stems. And now there's a bush out there that's about three and a half feet tall and three foot in diameter. And the hope is that one day it will bear fruit again so that one of y'all can make apricot jam. (laughs) Who knows how to make apricot jam? This dynasty looked like a stump. God's people were carried off into exile. They looked to be dead and to be done. But God promised, oh, from this stump will come a shoot. And that shoot is the root. The root is Jesus. The shoot is Jesus. This dynasty will live. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Get it? So as John anticipates now this roaring, powerful, kingly lion who's going to take with his massive paws and claws and he's going to rip open seven seals because it takes that kind of power to open this thing, he sees something altogether different. Notice now the unforeseen Savior, verse 6. Between the throne... (laughs) And the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a what? Ravaging, powerful lion? Ready to rip open the seals? No. That's what he was anticipating. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So rather than seeing what he expected, a lion king, he sees the meekest and weakest and dumbest of all animals. 
a lamb, not only a lamb, but a lamb appearing as though it had been slain. Butchered. Now, because things are not as they appear in the book of Revelation, beloved, we see once again a mixed metaphor, do we not? The one worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll is none other than the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who, when John looks, sees between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Notice, this lamb does not come from outside of the throne. He does not come from outside the elders or the living creatures surrounding the throne, but he is in between them and the throne. It's from there that he proceeds. Where was he? At the throne. He was already there. He doesn't walk from the outside. He walks from within. The lamb stands in the center, surrounded by the living creatures, surrounded by the elders, because he is no created servant, servant beloved. He is creator. And he's the mediator, the mediator of both creation and Redemption, Jesus Christ. So the one who's the line of the tribe of Judah will war against the enemies of God while at the same time the gentle lamb that has been slain purchased his people by way of a blood atonement. Sacrificed lamb. So John sees here the suffering servant of God and his humiliation. He sees the suffering servant of God in his passion. He sees the suffering servant of God in his meekness as a sacrifice for the people of God. So this vision is central to the paradoxical mystery of the Christian faith, isn't it? This is the Christian faith. That's why the Christian faith is foolish to those that are perishing, beloved. You mean to tell me in order for me to be saved, it's not a matter of working my way into the sight of God, finding favor into the sight of God by uh, allowing my uh, good works to outdo my bad, or now that I'm you know, 45 years old, I better start making up for all the garbage I did back here, and as long as I do good enough, I'll make it to heaven? Wrong. You'll never make it. It takes a lion who became a lamb who was crushed crushed, as Isaiah 53 says, by the Father. Crushed. Who's the only way? That's why he's the only way. But when you tell that to a lost and dying people, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are on their way to hell. Perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the of God. The lamb is the power. A lamb standing as though he'd been slain is the power that saves the sinner. If you read the headline news of the morning's paper and it said, man, mauled by a lion, mauled to death by a lion, you would go, oh, that's terrible. That's too bad. You wouldn't be shocked by that. Amen? <laughs> Pick up the same newspaper the next day, and the headline reads, Innocent man mauled to death by a lamb. <laughs> you would laugh. Can you imagine? Rearing up on his hind little legs? Nah! <laughs> Unheard of. I thought of that sitting on my front porch Saturday before y'all's wedding, looking at that shoot that became a bush that I hope will bear fruit one day. So here then, the shoot that has the root the shoot that is this root is the lion that is the lamb. Royal authority, beloved, and perfect sacrifice as one. 
That's who's worthy to open the scroll. That's the only one who can open the scroll. And there he stands, notice, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven horns stands for the perfection of regal authority, royal majesty, and kingly splendor. Seven eyes refers to his omniscience. He sees all, he knows all, because he is all, and he's all in all which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Referring now, beloved, to the sevenfold spirit of God that was prophesied to be upon Messiah also in Isaiah 11. The sevenfold spirit of God that would be upon the promised Messiah. So the person and the work, beloved, of the Holy Spirit is not to bear witness of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're in a church that says that the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, you're in a bad church. If you're in a church where somebody's only saying, the Spirit told me this and the Spirit told me that and the Spirit told me this and the Spirit told me that, you're in a bad church. Because the Spirit isn't going to tell you what the Word already says. The Spirit is not going to tell you what the Word does not say. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Not about himself. About me. You see, the Holy Spirit does Christ's bidding. As I preach this morning, Jesus Christ, the lion who is the lamb, the Holy Spirit is working through his word, through me, to you, to minister to your soul as a blood-bought saint, to perhaps convict you, to perhaps edify you, to perhaps remind you of who is on the throne. You're not. He ministers. The Spirit points to the lamb. That's his ministry. Churches that are constantly talking about the spirit this, the spirit that, blah, 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 blah. They hold church services that actually become like a circus sideshow. And that's where you get into all that whack teaching and whack theology and people falling down and doing all kinds of ridiculous things. They're anything but biblical and glorifying to Christ. So the Holy Spirit is always pointing to the Lamb. If preachers are preaching about money, all the time preaching about money, all the time preaching about this blessing of your checkbook and all this nonsense, they're not preaching Christ, they're not a church. He's not a preacher. He's pointing to the lamb who appears to have been slain with seven horns. Small and weak, but mighty and strong. Submitting himself to death he rose to conquer and to rule. A sacrificed lamb that it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Only he can bring about, only he can unfold the agenda of the Almighty. Only he can look into and unfold and implement that which is written within. This one. The response? Unending singing. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now, a harp in the ancient world was known as an instrument of joy. A harp in biblical times was more like a banjo than what we know of a harp to be today. Joyous noise. So if you have in your mind the picture of a, you know, a, a chubby cherubim sitting on the cloud going, brum, bum, 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 bum. Twinkie diet cherub. No such thing. This is, this is like a plucking of a banjo. Great, joyous noise. And with it, they sing a new song. Because you see, beloved, this is precisely what heaven is all about. Never, never forget this. When you get to heaven, you know what it is? Never, ever, ever ending joy. 
You think about the most joyous experience you've ever had here as a Christian, and then you multiply that by infinity. That's what you will experience in the presence of the Almighty for eternity. When do we experience the fullest amount of joy here on earth? When we abide in Christ. Abide in me and I in you so that your joy may be full. As a Christian, you can live a life and you can live times of your life where you're not abiding in Christ and you will be miserable. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God and you're not abiding in Jesus, therefore you're miserable. There you will be forever in his presence. You will see him as he is and you can't not abide in him when you're there. Hello, brother. Never ending joy. There'll be no lamenting there. It's all joy. So this force of angelic power, they all fall down before the lamb. They hold this instrument of joy along with these golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. Now in scripture, when we read about a new song being sung, it's always in response to God's unfolding plan of redemption as he intervenes in history to expose his divine will. We see miracles three different times in the Bible. In the ministry of Moses and Joshua. In the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And in the ministries of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. It ought to tell you something about miracles. Amen? Three specific times in redemptive history that God has manifest himself through the supernatural, through the hands of his ministers. The apostolic age is over. You won't see anyone raising up from the dead as someone stands over a casket and says, rise in the name of Jesus. It's not going to happen. Those signs pointed to something greater than themselves. And it was the authority of the ones who stood there and preached the word of God. And those who preached the word of God, who were rejected by the people, bore witness of the fact that they were called by God to follow up the message with miracles. We now have this. We don't need to validate the message any longer. It's been validated by the lion who's the lamb. Amen? Amen. Test a man. See if he's preaching this. I don't care how many people he said he's raised from the grave or raised up out of uh, the hospital bed. Ask for validation. If the guy was missing an arm, I want to see see a picture of the guy with no arm. I want to see that thing extend out. When Jesus spoke to a man with a withered hand, the man who had no hand had a hand. Come on, somebody. So here they are responding to God's act of deliverance. A new song is sung. And what is the essence of this song, beloved? It's the worthy one. It's the only one. Notice, they're saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So the one who came from the throne of God is the one who was slain. Therefore, all of God's promises are sure to be disclosed. Because he was slain, he's fulfilled his mission. He did what he was sent in the world to do, beloved, fulfilling the Abrahamic promises of blessing for people from throughout all nations, providing atonement for his elect from throughout the whole world. See, when it says that Jesus died, God so loved the world that he gave, Jesus came and he died, he atoned for the sins of the elect chosen from throughout the whole world. In other words, Jesus atoned for the sins of the world without distinction, not without exception. Because everyone he atoned for will be in heaven. That's a guarantee. He atoned for the sins of Abraham, right? Before Jesus ever came. Abraham looked forward by faith, amen? By faith he looked forward to the one who would atone. And because he did come and he did atone and his faith was in the one who would atone, he's in heaven with the Lord who did atone. But Abraham's contemporaries who did not trust God, who did not have faith in God, when they died, they went where? To hell. 
So when Jesus came, he atoned for the sins of Abraham. He didn't atone for the sins of those that were already in hell. They were already in hell. Nor did he atone for anyone who will be in hell. He atoned for a people, a one people, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God's people, his kingdom, his priests. As Dr. Stephen Lawson said, Jesus did not die for a unanimous blob of people. He died for an eternal people. That's you. That's why we come to the table this morning, beloved, remembering what he did. What does Ephesians say? He chose you when? Before the foundation of the earth to beset his love upon you, to predestine you according to his purpose that this bloody atonement would be for you in Christ. Thank you, Jesus is right. To be ransomed by his blood is to be delivered by his death. To be covered by his blood is to be saved through his cross. You see, life is in the blood and he laid down his life and he took it up again. Why? Because he's the root who became the shoot, the creator and the fulfillment of the promise, giving life to the stump. We are saved. We come to the table remembering that you're saved. What are you saved from? If I ask you, you're saved from what? Hell, some will say. You just stole my thunder, brother. (laughs) Sin, Death, yes, in part, you're saved from death, sin, and hell. More than anything else, you're saved from God. His wrath. That's what the lion went to the cross for. He came and he became sin, never having sinned. He bore the wrath of the Father. Isaiah, again, says that it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse so that you can live and be spared God's wrath. That's what salvation is. That's what being saved is all about. Do you not know 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have been, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Response, what? What? So glorify God in your body. Because he became a curse, because he bore the wrath of the Father in your place, therefore, live your life in a manner that glorifies him. You're living from the cross. You're living from God's favor. You're not living to find God's favor. If you're in Christ, you're living from it. Therefore, this is how we shall now live. Amen? Amen. So we are a kingdom We are his priests living in the midst of an already inaugurated kingdom. Jesus said, if if I cast out demons, the kingdom is upon you. The kingdom came with Christ and that kingdom established by Christ will one day be consummated in a new heaven and a new earth. And in the meanwhile, we are here as his priests, sojourners, mediators with the word of God to declare this saving truth, the reason we come to the table. That's why we're here. We make up his kingdom. So the kingdom is not earthly real estate. We're talking about true Canaan, fulfilled by the true Canaanite. (laughs) Because a Canaan given to Israel was lost because they did not and could not keep his law. But one greater came who forever secured the land, which is an eternal land, by upholding the law, the one to whom Moses pointed, the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. The true one, the true Canaan, who who secured a land whose foundations and whose architect and builder is, it's God. That's our hope. So we're priests now, Mediators of God's holy, eternal word and dwelt and empowered with and by his Holy Spirit. So here now this scroll containing all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing has been opened by the lion who's appeared as a lamb. And that's the reason they sang a new song. Because high theology, 
always demands high doxology. Why, would he, why do we sing about Christ being slain? Why do we sing about the blood? Why do we sing about the resurrection? Because the high theology and understanding of God, you can't but sing words of high doxology, praises to the one who did come. Instead of songs about, you know, breezes and butterflies and things of that nature. And I heard every creature, notice now, along with this angelic symphony, is this ever-growing and multiplying choir. This is beautiful. They sing a new song regarding a ransomed people of God for God, and there's myriads and myriads of other angelic hosts here joining the chorus. A myriad is 10,000. So here is 10,000 times 10,000. You have 100 million joining the chorus to, to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. But it doesn't end there. Notice verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshipped. You see, beloved, the more closely we observe the intrinsic glory of God, the greater will our ascribed glory be to God. Now, the difference between inscribed glory and ascribed glory is this, or intrinsic glory. The intrinsic glory of God is the glory that God has in and of himself. There's nothing you or I can do to add to it or take away from it. He has it just because he is. Because of his intrinsic glory, who he is and what he's done, we as a corporate body of believers grant him and give him what? Ascribed glory the glory that is due his name, singing and worshiping and living holy lives. That's ascribed glory. Now from this point forward, where God is mentioned, the Father, the Lamb is also mentioned. Notice, to him who sits on the throne and to the what? To the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We see it again in chapter 7. We see it in chapter 14, chapter 21, chapter 22. This is the reality and purpose under which we live, beloved. This is the reality of life. This is the relevant reality that the church must understand and therefore live by. This, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Oftentimes, churches will offer you this. You see billboards or door hangers or websites that will say, look, come to visit us. We will offer you something you can use in the real world. You ever heard that? We'll give you something relevant by which they mean, you know, we'll give you a Jesus you can summons in the midst of your world the way you see things. Where Jesus becomes this commodity for you to use in your situation, whatever that might be, like a genie or a token to help me in my relationships and my popularity, my desire for success. And so long as things are going good, I'll I'll set Jesus up on the dash. But according to this vision, just the opposite is being communicated. He's showing us what the real world is, beloved. This is it. This is the reality, beloved. This is exactly what's going on in the universe. Therefore, may our lives be shaped by the reality of Scripture, the reality of the cross, and the one who rules the universe. So regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're facing here and now as a blood-bought saint, you will suffer for my name's sake, he said. You will be not mocked for my name's sake. But rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward where? Heaven. What comes into our minds when we think about God? Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What's the ultimate message of Revelation here? The bottom line is this. The lamb has prevailed. The lamb rules 
and he reigns. He's been given authority to open the scroll. He's the lion who has the power to implement what's in the scroll because he became a lamb for you. For you. See, it's the lamb who has the book of life. And in the book of life are the names of all the redeemed. And the names of the redeemed can never be blotted out from his book. And those names were written when? Before the foundation of the earth. That's right. He entered into his glory. And he promises here, because he's entered into his glory, all those that are in him will participate in this glory. Which is to say that the revelation of his glory here in chapter 5 is the promise of your glory. This is the promise of glory for you. That Christ reigns in glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this glorious picture of what heaven looks like to some degree. And we know because of your majestic glory that uh, metaphors and imagery must be provided for us to get just a glimpse of what it is like. But we thank you, Lord, that As a result of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're called to a life that is to be shaped by the cross. Because salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Lord, I want to pray on behalf of all those in attendance this morning, those that are sinners saved by grace, that as we come to the table, Um, we will partake in remembering what you have accomplished on our behalf. That we will remember that you will always remember your new covenantal promise of grace. And we are here, Lord, to renew that covenant on our part. To understand that we have been forgiven once and for all and forever. But Lord, may we be quick to confess our sins and to abide in the Savior remembering that your body was broken for us and your blood shed so that our hope of salvation is not to get saved but to step into glory because we are saved. Bless your people today, Lord, and may your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.